0: welcome to the get a job here's how podcast the practical how-to guide for women returning to the workforce recent grads and those looking to get the job of their dreams now here's the founder of the back to business women's conference and your host katie dunn
1: to wrap up the year and mark the end of season one of the get a job here's how podcast i'm bringing you this very special final episode of the season with highlights of some of the best job search advice shared on this show by my guests. This is going to be fun. So I got started by telling you how to get started on your job search. Basically, it boiled down to have a bias toward action. I gave you three steps to getting started. The first being define your personal brand. Basically, know who you are and what you have to offer. Second, make personal connections And third, make yourself visible. These were themes that I found repeated throughout the season with different guests in different episodes. In episode two, we talked about making the most of a networking event with recruiter Caitlin Hooks. These tips hold true even for virtual events, although at the time we were talking about going to in-person networking events. Caitlin told us to research thoroughly, engage pointedly, and follow up strategically. Basically, she said, figure out who's going to be there and who you want to meet, show up early, be prepared, do some research so you know what you want to talk about with people, and then afterwards, follow up with people you met to solidify the connection and keep the relationship going. By the way, much of this advice still applies for virtual events. It just needs to be adapted a little bit. Episode three was all about joining a job search group, and my guest was my friend Ellen Dalbo. Did you know that people who took part in job search work teams, or basically did their job search as a community effort, got employed 20% faster than those using traditional methods? This is according to a book called Team Up by Orville Pearson. You'll find that churches run groups, there are meetups for every kind of interest and job field. And if you're local to the Raleigh area, please join Back to Business. Back to Business is a company I started that was really focused on growing a community. That was a huge goal for me. And we've been able to connect women returning to work after a career break with each other and with employers. Joining a job search group is a point reinforced by Dr. Don Graham in episode 33, who said that job search is a social event. And we should talk about what we're looking for so others can help us. I love when it all comes together like that. And speaking of asking for help with your job search, this is a theme that Steve Dalton, author of The Two-Hour Job Search, and I spent some time discussing. I love Steve's take on why we have to get comfortable asking other people for help. Here it is from episode 26.
0: You can do so much more when you have the help of others than you can just by yourself. So I would hope that, and I, and I see this a lot, people who gain comfort asking for favors during their job search just find this kind of halo benefit to their actual lives when they're able to ask people to help them, to make their lives better. And that leads you to want to be involved in other people's lives and make their lives better. And it just it makes for just a happier, healthier universe, especially during this time of isolation that we're all experiencing I do think it just benefits everybody to get over this hangup about asking people for a favor, asking them for the gift of their time. We crave connection now more than perhaps ever before in our lifetimes, at least, maybe even in, in modern history, given the, the current circumstances. At least we, you know, we have these wonderful tools in Zoom and, and the internet to connect with others, but the thought that we're afraid of imposing on another person, people can ignore us if they're not open to crafting a relationship with a stranger. But not only does the inability to ask for a favor hold you back in your job search, I think it just holds you back in terms of happiness more broadly. Furthermore, it'll hold you back in terms of how far you can get in your career because at some point you're going to have to sell business, which means taking a stranger and turning them into a client or get knowledge from someone else in your organization to get your job done or get on different people's radars to advocate for you at promotion time within your current organization. It just really behooves people. And the sooner you learn that lesson, I wish it, I wish at informational meetings were something they taught at the grade school or high school level, because it's just truly maybe one of the only universal professional skills out there. And mm. yet, for as many of us take a speech class, so few of us take a listening class. And that just breaks my heart. <laughs>
1: I ask Steve if the two-hour job search process still holds, even in our COVID-affected environment of 2020, and here is his answer. When we think about this sort of strange new world we're living in where everybody is working from home and we're not having coffee with people anymore, we're just chatting over Zoom or phone calls, is this a process that works effectively in a situation like we're in now?
0: As I told you earlier, the the two-hour job search was developed during the financial crisis of 2008. It was my exact recipe for how do you find a job if you've never looked for a job before? Well, a career coach should probably be the one to answer that question rather than a random job seeker who's doing this for the first time. Oddly, I came out with this brand new edition that removed references to the 2008 financial crisis, and it came out right when we were entering, entering a new and unprecedented financial crisis. But Honestly, it works. It was built for a time exactly like this. It was built for a recessionary period. It just happened to work really well in a in a boom period as well. But people didn't have to follow it as closely to be successful. They just even getting partway down the path, people were getting snatched up with jobs. So, I think people who use the two-hour job search over the past few years may have developed, may have not practiced it with complete fidelity, but were completely successful with it. In a recessionary period like this one, it is critical that people follow the recipe precisely. Every step is there for a reason. So while things like following up on an, a six-point outreach email that didn't get responded to, that stuff could be forgiven two years ago because the economy was so hot. Nowadays, it's, it's essential. People are, have twice as much email as they did three months ago. So it's critical that you give them a second chance to respond to you. They may genuinely want to, but they're so overwhelmed with email because of our, our face-to-face connection ability has been taken away. So no, I would argue that a two-hour job search is more effective vis-a-vis not using the two-hour job search now than it was six months ago. And that's, that's the critical perspective. It's, the two-hour job search has remained successful throughout the last decade, but it is even more successful than any alternative that you can come up with. That's really what the two-hour job search is about. It's about maximizing your return on effort. So for every hour you put into your job search, I want to get you the maximum amount of benefit from that hour as I can. So many people have poured that hour of effort into online job postings. And maybe they've gotten away with it last year or three years ago. It's not going to work now. It it just simply will not work. Too many people are embracing that same approach. And there just aren't enough jobs to go around. To be successful in a recessionary job period means getting strangers to become your advocates. And that sadly is just something that's not taught in school.
1: Preparing for an interview with Al D was episode number four. Al just wrote a great book about the MBA experience and how to get the most out of it. Al says that before you walk into an interview, you should craft your story. That means you should take the insights you get from all the research you've done about what that company is looking for in candidates and come up with the narrative that you want to tell about why you are the best person for the job. He even says to think of yourself as a product on Amazon and be ready to sell yourself as a solution that company needs. Jeremy Shiffling and I talked about how to break into tech in episode five. Jeremy describes the different tech job titles that are available, and I love how he makes this so easy to digest and understand. Take a listen, this is masterful, as he takes us through everything from business operations to corporate development to product management.
2: Yes, I think the first thing is being able to decode the, the alphabet soup of tech job titles. Because in this same vein of access, while you might know the company names, the Googles and the Facebooks, if you don't know BizOps from BizDev from corp dev, if you don't know Product Management from Product Marketing Management, You're going to have nowhere to sort of where to navigate your ship. And so I would love to give your listeners a little bit of a crash course that I wish I had when I was in their shoes.
1: Yes, please.
2: Okay. So I want you to imagine that Apple in Cupertino, California is currently working on the world's most amazing car. There has been probably a thousand articles written about this over the last decade, whether they're building an electric car or a self-driving car or some kind of car of the future. Whatever it is. This Apple car, if it is really being built, is being built by a lot of people who have absolutely no technical skills. And so here's the story of that car through those roles that anyone can get on the outside, even if you're not an engineer. Okay. Okay. So now, imagine if you will, that you're Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, and you're trying to figure out, should I invest 10 or 20 or $30 billion in this huge, massive project? Well, you're not going to make that decision on a whim. You're going to look at the data. And the folks who are going to help you do that are the business operations team. You know, these are people with strong analytical skills, strong presentation-making skills, who can crunch the numbers and figure out, is there a market for this car? Is it worth building? So that's a great role, business operations. Okay. Then, once Tim Cook gives the green light, well, now Apple has a new problem. How do they actually build this car, given that they don't have any automotive engineers? Well, that's where the people ops or people operations team, often known as HR, comes in. They're the ones that go out to Tesla, and to Cruise, and to Ford, and to GM to poach away that talent and bring them to Cupertino. So that's people operations. But that's not going fast enough. So Tim says, let's speed up the hiring rate. Instead of just hiring one engineer a day, let's hire 100. And the easiest way to do that is not just to hire one engineer at a time, but to buy a team of engineers. And that's the role of corporate development or corp dev. Figuring out who are the startups in the space, who's got great talent, and then going out and acquiring them for the firm. Now you've got a whole army of engineers coming to work on this project. That's corp dev. Okay, the team is coming together, but what are they gonna build? I know you're wondering this, Katie. (laughs) So this is where the research function comes in. And there are two great research roles for all those research nerds like myself in the tech world. There's the quantitative side, which is market research. So how big is the market for electric cars? How fast is it growing? But there's also the qualitative side, what does someone want in a prospective new car that Tesla can't offer or that Chevy can't offer? And they actually might do test drives with prospective buyers who really understand one-on-one what those folks want. And those are the user experience or UX researchers who focus on the qual side. Now, once, once those ideas are coming together, now that classic role of product manager, kind of like the captain of the team, so to speak, incorporates all this talent, and all these ideas into a specific vision. Here's what the car is going to look like. Here's what it's going to be able to do. But the product manager, as central as that role is, can't do it all themselves. Instead, they need a team of folks to pull it off, including project managers. These are folks who actually manage the day to day of who's doing what, when is it due, holding folks accountable. If you alphabetize all your spices in your kitchen, you would probably be a great uh, project manager <laughs> with the incredibly detailed world of tech. Okay. Nice. I do so not. Almost, who, who does that? Do you do that? Me, me neither. <laughs> but I will tell you, I've been to some of these folks' homes, and it's incredible. <laughs> they can do that at our kitchen. Imagine the kinds of technology products they can yes, build. Yes,
1: yeah. The world needs people <laughs> like that. That's good.
2: <laughs> so at this point, we've been talking all the bits and bytes, you know, ideas on a whiteboard, pixels on a screen. How do we translate that into the real world? Well, that's where the operations supply chain supply chain team comes in. So. For a company like Apple, it's actually creating real Atom-based products out there in the real world. These are the folks that are getting the assembly capacity needed, partnering with supply chains to ultimately make sure that all the sort of pieces and components of this car come together into a finished product. So if you actually love getting your hands dirty and building real things, ops and supply chain could be a good place for you in tech. Now, once these cars are rolling off the assembly line then comes the product marketing function. This is the sort of critical marketing role in the tech space. And what this group does is they try to stimulate demand for this new product, understand the audience, understand where they are, and then speak their language in a way that has people salivating and lining up around the block to be the first in line for the brand new Apple car. That's product marketing. But one more challenge in Apple's way here, Katie, which is, while you might be happy to buy an iPhone based on a beautiful advertisement, you're probably not going to do the same for a fifty or hundred thousand dollar car. You want to be able to test drive it.
1: Absolutely.
2: Only well, issue is Apple doesn't have any test drive facilities, let alone dealerships. So what they do is they actually barter with organizations that do have that. So in the same way that Apple worked with Singular and AT and T to have an exclusive partnership on the iPhone, Apple could have an exclusive partnership with, say, Hertz. To say Hertz, you're in a commodity business. There's not a big difference between Hertz and National and Enterprise, but what if you had exclusive access to rent the Apple car for the first three years of its existence and in exchange, anyone in the world could go to a Hertz dealership and test drive an Apple car? Now we've got a win-win for both sides. That's called business development or biz dev. That's a really great partnership building role in the tech world. Similar to biz dev, you also have a role that everyone is familiar with called sales, which is the fact that... You might be able to sell one car at a time this way, but if you want to sell a thousand cars for a corporate fleet to Uber or to Lyft, you're going to have to wine and dine their executives, and the sales team builds those relationships and closes those deals. Two roles to go, Katie, and then we're going to have covered the gamut. <laughs> now, Apple has closed those deals. They've sold a ton of cars, but they got to make sure that the cars that are sold don't just sit idle, that they're used and they're loved, and they become a reference point for future sales. And the way the tech world does that is through customer success. Actually having folks that work with the largest clients to make sure they're having an amazing experience and they tell all their friends and they renew their contracts. So if you love having those relationships, solving customers' problems, customer success could be a beautiful spot for you. And then finally, just like this whole project started on a spreadsheet with the business operations team, it's gonna end with the finance and accounting teams, hopefully counting up all those beans, realizing this incredible profit And then Tim Cook, and then share that great news with Apple's investors, bringing the entire cycle to fruition. So 12 amazing roles all across the tech industry, not one that absolutely requires technical expertise.
1: Wow, that that was a fantastic walkthrough of all those roles. So thank you for that. (laughs) Sometimes as a job seeker, you need professional help to get your most important job seeking assets in great shape. That's when you'd call my friend Mir Garvey from Job Market Solutions. She's an expert resume writer and LinkedIn profile writer. I called on Mir to take us through the process of working with a professional LinkedIn or resume writer in episode seven. Here's Mir talking about how she helps clients develop a resume that will get past that applicant tracking system.
3: We use a tool called JobScan. Internally, when we write our resumes, we'll take the first draft and run it against the three job ads that we ask the client to provide. And if we don't get a good score, we'll go back and make sure that we have included enough keywords and the right keywords to bump the score up. And that's before we even deliver the first draft to our clients. When we're done with the resume and we deliver the the final version four, which is the proofread final resume, we give our clients some guidance on how to use that tool. You can go to jobscan.co. It's out there. It's initially free. Eventually, you do have to subscribe. But you know, you know, you paste in the job ad, you upload your resume, and you run an analysis. And so you will get a percent match, and you'll also get some suggestions about how to boost your match. And it's not an exact science, you know, you may be, you know, dinged for not including management, although the word management, but you certainly covered that topic with terms like manage or manager. You You do have to kind of parse through the feedback that you get when you run a job scan analysis, but very often there are good suggestions about how to better revise your resume to compete against or compete for. One particular job ad that you're getting ready to apply for.
1: Mir came back for an encore in episode 10 to provide us with some great LinkedIn tips. Here are my two favorite tips she shared for LinkedIn. First, have a compelling opening statement for your about section and be sure it's keyword optimized. Most people don't scroll through your entire about section, and so your first line is going to really need to grab them. And number two, Tell the story behind your resume in your LinkedIn profile and share a heartfelt reason why you do what you do. Another great resource besides LinkedIn is Glassdoor. It's a great source for company ratings. And in episode eight, I talked to my niece, Ellen Dunn, who was an account executive there about how to make the most of Glassdoor in your job search. Ellen's best tip? Use Glassdoor to make sure you know your worth when you're negotiating an offer. If you're going to convince someone to give you more money, you'll need good data to back up your claim and you can get that on Glassdoor. And speaking of negotiating, in episode 29, I spoke with coach Vicki Bevenauer about negotiating. In addition to negotiating salary, Vicki says you can negotiate a whole host of things. Here's her list. Vacation time, the level at which you're being hired in, benefits, your bonus, the ability to work from home, tuition reimbursement, cell phone reimbursement, training allowance, parking, and travel perks. Don't leave anything on the table. Now in addition to negotiating, one thing you simply must be able to do as a job seeker is talk about your strengths in a confident manner. So I spent some time with Zakakis a career coach based in Michigan, to talk about the finder assessment. Damien shared in episode nine that we can make greater strides in our self-development when we focus our resources on developing our stronger talents into strengths, instead of focusing on trying to fix our weaknesses. If you're interviewing for a job, Damien says that your ability to describe your strengths and how you capitalize on them will set you apart from other candidates. And that just might be the edge you need in an interview. So take the Clifton Strengths assessment and then really lean into your strengths. Companies have been putting lots of effort into hiring more diverse teams. And I wanted to understand how this works for candidates. Danielle Pavlov, a senior diversity and inclusion manager at SAS and I spoke in episode 11 about leveraging uniqueness in your job search. Danielle came up with that title, and I really loved it. I also loved some of the information she shared, which helped me understand the importance of being a voice for others to ensure that people with diverse gifts are recognized and appreciated in the workplace. Here's Danielle. Yeah, this one, I I like this. This third
4: step is to be a champion and to advocate. That's something that I've learned in, in my career is be an ally and an advocate. So for yourself and for others. And I would say that help it helps everybody because organizations need people who can help break down silos and barriers and stereotypes. As a diversity and inclusion professional, I'm one person and I bring my own unique identities to the table. But I don't, I can't effectively represent your identities. And so we have to all be in this together to not only provide representation, but education so that people are more aware of their biases and stereotypes and and again, see the value in diversity and in inclusion.
1: In episode 12, I spoke with a technical recruiter named Dina Schweitzel about succeeding at technical interviews. Technical interviews aren't something that every job seeker will encounter, But if you're interviewing for a position as a software developer, you will definitely be put through a technical interview. Dina shared that candidates should be asking questions during a technical interview rather than just pretending they know everything. Listen to this. They want you to
5: ask questions back or if they if they use an acronym that you don't know or a a word or a phrase or something, it's okay. Like sometimes they do that on purpose. To see if you're comfortable enough to be like, can you time out for a second? I don't know. I don't understand where you're going with this. I didn't understand that acronym you just used. Can you kind of come back to me? Because sometimes things are industry specific. Can you come back to me and talk me through like how you came up with that question or that acronym? Can you explain what it means to me? People often think that if we do something like that or ask questions, it makes us seem not knowledgeable and then we wouldn't get the job. When in fact, it shows a different level of knowledge that you're okay to know that you're not... You don't know everything. You're not always gonna be the smartest person in the room and that's the opportunity to learn and grow from from those around you.
1: Yep. That's great. I'm hearing from people they want that instead of hiring the person who knows everything, they will hire the person who is interested in learning everything. So you don't have to know it all going in and you do have to be comfortable saying, I'm not familiar with that. Could you explain that? Yeah. So I think an interview is a great place to figure out if you're that person who can do that. And for job seekers in general, you might be interested to know that Dina says only 5 or 10% of people bother to write thank you notes after an interview. And only about 15% seem to write a cover letter. And guess what? She actually reads cover letters and says that it can really set a candidate apart if it's done well. Now that's information you can use in your job search right now. Here's Dina with some ideas about writing thank you notes. And so then the candidate goes home and hopefully they write a thank you note. Let's talk about that. They generally don't. I I think it's less than,
5: in my experience, I cannot speak for all the recruiters in the world, but in my experience, it's probably less than five or 10%. That that actually do it.
1: unbelievable to me. Yeah. That is so crazy. Yeah. So 95% of the people out there will not spend five minutes to write a thank you note.
5: Yeah. And there's so many ways you can do it, right? You could ask the recruiter for email addresses. You can write individual ones to everyone that you met with and talk about specifics, even if it's just a couple sentences, and send it to the recruiter and ask them to pass it on. You could even just write one group thank you note, you know? hey, it was great meeting everyone. I'm really excited about the opportunity. Here's what I learned today. And, you know, I can't wait to hear more. It doesn't have to be like a big, massive thing. It could be just a few sentences, but you definitely stand out. And it's weird because sometimes people bring up, do they write a note? And most,
1: most don't. It's so. Wow. I can't believe that. Yeah. It's really surprising to me that so few people do that. But good for the rest of us who write them. Yeah, it's usually it's usually my us sales really people good. that
5: uh, <laughs> that get them out to me. But yeah, it it's always interesting, especially even if you're not looking for technical work. I mean, customer service, professional services, you know, people who are interacting with customers. It's also great to see how you write off the cuff. You know, your resume could have been reviewed by 15 people. And this is a great way to show your quick, you know, when you're quick, especially if you get them the next day.
1: Right.
5: We used to actually mail them. Do you remember that? Yes.
1: If you're returning to work after taking time off to stay home with kids, here are a few gems specifically for you. If you're deciding about taking that first job that comes along as you return to work, I covered that in episode six with a few things to consider. First, think about your motivation. It's important. So take stock of what's compelling you to rejoin the workforce. Second, since every big choice we make involves a trade-off, be really clear about the trade-off involved in taking that job so you can make a good decision about whether or not it's the right one for you. Consider the positives and negatives. And third, decide if this job might be the stepping stone to get you to your ultimate career goal. And if so, take it. In episode 13, my guest was Coach Farnoosh Brock, Farnoosh is so smart, and if you're not following her on LinkedIn, I suggest you do so so you can benefit from all the great content about career success that she's sharing. Farnoosh and I talked about determining where the right place might be for you to re-enter the workforce. She gave a tip that has really stayed with me. In addition to taking an inventory of what you're good at, you have to consider if those particular skills are skills you actually want to use. Yep, just because you have skills in one area doesn't mean that using them will make you happy. Because we all know that we'll be better at doing something and more highly motivated if we enjoy what we're doing. And if you're returning to work amid a divorce, please check out episode 18. This is my conversation with Sarah Hank, an attorney at New Direction Family Law in Raleigh, North Carolina. I know there are many women out there who are in a position of having to go back to work while you go through a divorce. Sarah and I tackle the questions of how getting a job before your divorce is final may impact your settlement, what happens if one spouse has been unfaithful, and how to carve out money to use to upskill in preparation for returning to work. In March, when COVID shifted how we work, live, learn, and look for work, I did an episode about adapting your job search to our new virtual only world. Nine months later, it's clear this is a shift that will impact hiring and the future of work permanently. Interviews became virtual only, and those in-person meetups and coffee chats that I've always felt were important for job seekers disappeared. My best advice for finding a job in our current environment? Continue to network by requesting meetings and informational interviews with anyone who knows anything about the job you wanna get and just do them virtually. Also get savvy on social media and build that online presence as a professional in your field. This will help you get those networking meetings with that person who can advocate for you for the right opportunity. If you're wondering how on earth to reach out to people you don't know, to have those informational interviews and networking meetings and talk about career choices, and I know you are, take a few clues from my friend, Nishant Montwani. Nishant is an MBA student that I met while I was working at UNC Chapel Hill. He came to the U.S. from India to pursue his MBA and didn't know a single person in this country. His story is really inspirational because he needed a network and he set about building one. He was so good at it, he works at Google today. Well done, Nishant That was episode 17 called How to Build a Network from Scratch, and you can do it too. And for a different perspective on networking, I talked to my friend Adam Connors of NetworkWise. He talked about the value of rekindling older connections with people that you may have known from an earlier time in your life. There's no better time, he says. Do it now. Corona has reminded us that our relationships are the most important things we have, and encouraged us to continue to cultivate new relationships sending someone a note that says i'm thinking about you and here's why is a great way to get started and if you want specific tips on doing video interviews or putting together a video resume check out my conversation in episode 16 with ryan carey from better on ryan let me in on a secret that your energy comes across differently on video than it does in person So you should figure out how your energy translates to video. Record yourself doing a practice interview and notice how you feel as you do it. Rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10 for the level of energy you feel you're putting out. Then watch it back and rate it as an audience member. Ryan says you should push yourself to be an 11 on a 1 through 10 scale. And that's because research shows people won't really remember your message so much as they'll remember how they felt talking to you. And your positive energy can leave them with a great impression. So take that tip from Ryan Carey and bring the energy. In episode 22, I spoke with Michelle Muir. She's the Regional Operations Director for the North Carolina Department of Commerce. She pointed us to career exploration tools, resume assistance, and job search assistance, including a job board, and even scholarships that are available for retraining for North Carolinians. I want you to find every resource out there. So if you're in North Carolina, ncworks.gov is a good place to look for job search support. It's all free by the way. And if you're not in North Carolina, look for your state's similar resources. If you're considering a career change or a return to work, I hope you'll be as inspired as I was by Annie Franceschi. Annie joined me for episode 23 to talk about her book, Permission to Try. If you've ever worried about what other people might think about your job choices, you'll want to hear Annie's take on how much you should pay attention to other people's advice. Here's Annie. You touch on that in the book too, and that that really resonated with me, but just the whole What will people think? People will think I'm crazy if I do this. How did that play into your thought process?
4: I think I knew for a very long time relative to when I made a decision to leave and to quit my job, that it wasn't really what I wanted that it wasn't what i thought it was going to be that the film industry wasn't what i thought it was going to be that it wasn't as creative i was really frustrated because a lot of my ironically a lot of my job i feel like 90% of my job was doing the administrative stuff to show that the 10% of what i could do you know and today i would tell you i spend 90% of my time showing what i can do and 10% on taxes it's a total <laughs> flip but i felt like i couldn't put my energy into that and so I felt like it was like sort of this shameful secret for many years, even from the very first jobs I had in LA, that job as a second assistant. And I thought maybe I'll become a screenwriter. Maybe I'll do these things. But I think I knew in the back of my mind that it wasn't really what I wanted, that it wasn't fulfilling, but I didn't have a better answer. And I think that's why a lot of us stay stuck, is that we don't know what's going to happen next if we give it all up. We're terrified of what other people are going to say. I grew up being a people pleaser. I'm a reform- I'm working on being a reformed people pleaser um, and having good boundaries. It's a very healthy thing to do in your 30s. But <laughs> what I generally found over time is that I-, I cared less and less about that, about what other people had to say. Because I realize a couple of things about what other people have to say. And one of the biggest things is that people often give you advice based on what they would do, not on what you really should do. They're coming from a place of maybe they're terrified to do what you're going to do. I had friends who tried to talk me out of taking my business full time, for example, because they were terrified I was going to fail because they thought they would fail if they did it. It wasn't about me. Austin Kleon, who's uh, one of my favorite authors, he says, all, all advice is autobiographical. So taking it with a grain of salt and realizing that most people are scared to take risks. They are scared to do big things. They are unhappy in their lives. And that was sort of the other thing I realized was that if I am right and I take a risk and it paid off and they're not taking those risks and they're telling me not to do it, but then I I prove them wrong. What does that mean for them? If they're sitting in a life, which I think unfortunately too many of the people in my life, especially at the time when I made these decisions, were slaves to kind of their fears. Right. And uh, as we all are, right. And so, needing to give themselves permission to figure it all out. So, what I realized is I sort of realized where people were coming from. And it, that took away a lot of the power that worrying about what other people thought held over
1: me. As COVID wore on, I sought the help of recruiter Will Barfield to talk about finding opportunities in a tough job market. Will shared some great advice that he gave to a job seeker who needed to pivot from a job in meetings and events to an entirely new field. Here's what he advised. I hope you'll be able to use some of his research as you think about your own career pivot. You
6: know, if, if we have a, a concern or a feeling or an inclination that we're, we're not just gonna go easily find another meetings and events, job and restaurant, what do you do? Well, we gotta work backwards. We gotta look at what we've done in our career and find the things that the skills and experiences that we've had that are, that are applicable to other career tracks? And are there things that we did in the past that we really enjoyed? You know, I talk to people about finding your happy. What was your happy? What made you happy at the jobs that you had in your career? Were there one or two or three common threads, right? Can you find those colors in there that are kind of visible throughout that are the, the pieces and parts that regardless of who you work for, what you did, there were commonalities that made you happy and made you want to get up and go to work every day and do an awesome job. And those happy factors are things that can be found in other positions and in other industries, but we, we've got to know our happy before we get in our search. And with her, she really wanted to move from meetings and events in the restaurant space, and, and, and what she liked, her happy, was taking care of customers, managing client accounts long-term, getting repeat business, and growing it. And so it was really the sales and relationship aspect of the industry, but it wasn't the new client acquisition. She was not the one that went out and found the business, but when the business came in, she was the one that managed it nurtured it, kept them coming back and, and she would reach out and, and go find more opportunities. So what we have begun doing is helping her look at account manager and customer or client success type roles that she may be able to apply for locally. Some of them may end up being kind of outside territorial management positions in, well, you mentioned beer and wine distribution. She found a, a territorial manager job in beer and wine industry where she would be going around and, and visiting area establishments that buy beer and wine and keeping their relationships going and, and growing the business. It's a great fit. It's not restaurant and meetings and events, but there's transitional and translatable experience and skill that works there. And so we spent a half hour together on the phone and then some more email follow-up and tried to help her build a strategy on how do I take what I've done and bend it, curve it and, and you know, how malleable is it so that I can, you know, attack the job market in a way where my history of work experience makes sense. And I can be a candidate of interest. If she didn't do that, Katie, and if we didn't re-engineer her resume and and help re-engineer the way she presented herself on LinkedIn, she would struggle to apply for jobs that looked different than what she's done because there's so much applicant traffic right now when you've got millions and millions of unemployed and it's, it's very hard to cut through the noise of all that traffic rushing in the front door, if you're not thoughtfully you know, crafting your resume and customizing your outreach efforts so that you stand out.
1: As a parent of two college-age kids in 2020, I spent a lot of time thinking about the best way for them to approach college, given the limitations that COVID was forcing on us. Taking a gap year began to look like a smart idea. And using that time to learn software development skills at a code school and then working until fall 2021 made it an even smarter idea. So I recorded episode 24 with Jessica Mitch, CEO of Momentum Code School in Durham, North Carolina, Mason Whitaker, who's a graduate of the Immersive Software Development Program at Momentum, and college advisor, Abby Bitler. Mason has had a stellar start to his career, and it was fun to hear how learning the software development skill set and having a college degree has fast-tracked him to a leadership position. By the way, it's not too late to join us at Momentum for a January start to this 16-week software development program if you're a college student looking to take a semester off college until things on campus get back to normal. There aren't that many meaningful things you can do with a semester off in 2020 given covid But learning to code can be done virtually, so it's a great option. Here's Mason Whitaker telling his story and the role that code school education has played in his success.
6: Yeah, so
7: I'll give you just kind of a quick rundown. When I was 17 in 2014 and I attended Momentum during that that summer after high school, I then went to Appalachian State University in 2014 and graduated in 2017. During that time, I worked at three different startups, kind of doing a variety of different things that were all software related. And the first startup that I got uh, that I worked for was directly linked to, to Momentum, so Shoebox, if, if you've heard of it. And then I worked as a sales consultant for Sprint, selling cell phones. I was very involved in my fraternity and ended up becoming president. I owned two of my own businesses, one was a social media management agency, and then One was a technology that allowed blind and the visually impaired people use social media just the same way that they would if they didn't have a disability. Ultimately, both got closed down. But then after graduating, I started working at Sunrise Technologies as a technical architect. Uh, I've worked with clients all across the domestic U.S. and implemented just about every type of system that you could name. The last one actually that I hadn't implemented was a manufacturing system. And I finally checked that box because the project I'm running has manufacturing plants across the globe. So now, now that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm actively working on.
1: All right. That's great. So you worked at three startups. That was during college?
7: Yes. Yep.
1: Yes. Okay. And then you started to of your own. That's amazing because a typical college kid sort of working their way through college would be like doing the Panera thing or, you know, something like that, like you did when you were in high school. But it looks to me like you were kind of able to get more meaty and meaningful jobs almost because you had a skill set that a lot of your peers just don't have because you because of the combination of your college and your code school is that right
7: yeah that's that's exactly right that foundation that i had from momentum really jump started everything it gave me a skill set that no one else in my age bracket had and so it it always put me kind of in the lead when it came to you know being a candidate for something
1: <laughs> if you're a career switcher I've got some great stuff for you, and spent a bunch of episodes talking about strategies for career switchers. This is such a hot topic, and so many job seekers fall into this category. Specifically, I did two episodes that I want to call out. The first was with Karen Weeks, she's the Senior VP of People at Order Groove. In episode 27, Karen gave some great advice for showcasing your transferable skills on your resume. And talked a lot about the value of immersing yourself in the new field you're making a change into. Be sure to check that one out. Also, Dr. Dawn Graham weighed in with advice for career switchers in episode 33. Dawn hosts the serious XM show, Dr. Dawn on Careers, and she's the author of a book called Switchers How Smart Professionals Change Careers and Seize Success. Dawn had so much great advice that you'll just have to listen to the whole thing. But in the meantime, here she is talking about approaching your career as a social activity. I love the image in my brain that I get of a job search as a social activity. That's a completely different way of thinking about it.
8: It really is. And I'm an introvert, so I know the first thought is, for all of my fellow introverts is, oh no, that is not comfortable. But when I say social activity, I'm not meaning big hall of strangers and networking in that sense. I'm, I'm talking about really the fact that we as humans don't like to be vulnerable. We don't often like to ask for help. And it can be for some, if you, maybe if you've been laid off or you've been in, in a job search for a while, people get embarrassed and they don't want to talk about it. So when people ask them, they change the subject. And I think we need to get over this. I think that those days are over because what we know is people change jobs every four years on average. And we are all going to be in a job search at some point, especially if we have 10, 20, 30 years left in our careers. So I think we need to look at it as, hey, we're all on a job search at some point. So if we can all help each other, then we're going to make this whole process easier for one another. Plus, I think we also overlook the fact that people in our lives, the people who already trust us, love us, want to see us succeed, have their own social circles. And social media has just created a much smaller world. So while you may think, "Oh, I know everybody that person knows," or I, they don't even know anybody in my space, you have no idea. You have no idea. And I've seen it so many times when you have a conversation with somebody in your family or you know, your neighbor at a barbecue, or you're standing on the sidelines watching your kids play soccer with you know one of the other parents, and you mention a company you're looking at, or you mention an industry, and and. I pretty much can guarantee if you give them that that information, somebody's going to say to you, oh, I know somebody who works there. Oh, my spouse used to work there. Or, oh, and they'll make this connection. And you're going to be shocked because people – are out there with their own circles. And as soon as they know you're looking for something, they want to help you with the challenges. We miss those opportunities because we don't talk about work. Or if we do talk about work, it's usually, oh, my boss is making me work overtime or I can't stand this client. We talk generalities or venting. So I think we need to shift that conversation and start asking one another, hey, what's your goal for this year? And the other piece of that is, it, you know, if you're asked that question, you have to have a clear answer for it, which many people don't have on the spot either. So, so it's that two part: know what your goal is for the year, and then ask others with their goal, and then start to help people because I think this is one of the easiest ways to network, especially if you're an introvert like me. And we so overlook the wealth of knowledge, insights, connections and information that people who
1: we interact with regularly have. And for all of you working moms out there, don't miss my conversation with Christine Michelle Carter. She advises companies on how to hire and retain working moms. Christine shared the need to be constantly reframing the set of circumstances working moms are facing this year in order just to survive. And she told me it was okay that my kids' screen time approaches 11 and a half hours some days, so I really love that. Christine is awesome. She's pushing for paid leave, flexibility at work, and other policies that will help working moms do everything we need to do. Austin Belsack was another amazing guest. He has tons of great ideas for job seekers. And says you should reach out to 10 to 15 people at each company you're applying to. Yep, 10 to 15 people per company. Here he is in episode 31, talking about why it's more efficient to target contacts on the team you want to work at rather than targeting recruiters who tend to be really busy people.
9: Unless you want to be an HR or you want to be a recruiter, I usually recommend avoiding them. And that's not a knock against recruiters, I typically find that really what it comes down to is two things. So one, recruiters are just totally slammed usually because a lot of people like us have the... We're told, hey, you need to network or you need to do more than just apply. And so to us, that means, okay, I see this person's a recruiter. I see their face next to the job post. Like I'll send them an email and now I'm going above and beyond. But the problem is you and 500 other people had that idea. So that person's inbox is totally swamped. It's really hard to stand out. But let's say that you do, let's say that you write a compelling email or you do something and that person picks you out of the crowd, the furthest their influence goes is getting you that interview. Like they can get you the phone screen but that's where their influence ends. They don't have any real influence over the end hiring decision. So you're putting in way more effort to get in touch with somebody who doesn't have nearly as much influence. Whereas if we go for the people who are on that team, that hiring team, that hiring manager, those people can get you an interview, just the same with the referral, but they are going to one, be able to coach you through the process much better. They're going to have a lot more influence over the end hiring decision. And they're easier to get in touch with because they're not getting bombarded with emails from job seekers all the time. So it, you just have a lot more bang for your buck and it's a lot more efficient to go for that hiring team right off the bat and let everybody else deal with their recruiters.
1: Flexibility is a theme that we talked over and over about in the, our season one of the podcast. There's such a need for companies to be flexible with their employees right now, as people are juggling their kids' virtual schooling in many cases with their own work, and just an elevated stress level. When I saw the recent data about the huge numbers of women leaving the workforce, I reached out to journalist Sarah Green Carmichael from Bloomberg to talk through the data with me. In episode 34, Sarah sheds some light on these disturbing statistics and shares ideas about how companies can keep the women that they already have. Interestingly, Sarah Green Carmichael and Christine Michelle Carter both cited a lack of childcare subsidies and the need for more flexibility, there's that word again, as key factors to retaining women. We've got to solve this one. We need more, not fewer women in the executive suites at our great American companies. And if we can't keep women in the workforce, we'll never be able to increase our numbers in leadership positions. I feel so strongly about this. I started back to business to help women return to work after taking a career break, because I wanna see women with career options that fit our complex lives and acknowledge the importance of our role as mothers. Being a mother is perfectly compatible with being a successful professional. I've met so many interesting people doing season one of the Get a Job, Here's How podcast. It was a thrill to finish the season out with a truly inspirational conversation with Jamie Valvano, Jamie has such an eloquent way of talking about how she pulled herself out of a prolonged, difficult period of her life. She's the daughter of famed basketball coach Jim Valvano, and she really embodies his never give up spirit that we all fell in love with. My conversation with Jamie left me feeling fired up to articulate my vision and get busy making it a reality. Seriously, folks, take a listen. It's episode 34, and it's a really good one. So thanks for a successful first season of the Get a Job, Here's How podcast. We've all had to make adjustments in 2020 to how we do things. And for me, it's been a year of trying new things like this podcast. I'm so glad you've been along for this ride with me, and I hope you'll continue to listen. The best way to stay in touch with everything going on here is to join the mailing list at Back to Business. You'll find it at backtobusinessconference.com. Please also subscribe to the podcast and keep listening. I appreciate you. My plan for 2021 involves publishing a series of digital courses to help women returning to work after taking a career break. I'm excited to get them into your hands because I know that as our economy turns around, you'll want to be ready to seize the opportunities that are available. And one final thought. Did you know that after the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, we had the roaring 20s? As we near the end of 2020 and look forward to an end to the coronavirus pandemic, I'm believing for some roaring 2020s ahead. I can't wait. Merry Christmas, y'all. Thanks
0: for joining us on this episode of the Get a Job, Here's How podcast. You can find all the information from this episode in our show notes at www.backtobusinessconference.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write a review so that we can reach more people. Now that you know how, go do it.